0: So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast.
1: Welcome back,
0: team. Oh, he threw me for a loop there. Thought you were gonna say Welcome Back Rebels. Yeah, I thought I'd change it up a bit, just be a bit exciting. Nice. How are you? Good. Yeah, good. I am <laughs> over the bloody moon because I just spent all morning playing with dogs and cats, about to see dogs and cats home.
1: Oh, exciting. Did you actually yeah. get to play with some?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh amazing. Yeah. They were taking me on a tour around the building and you get a certain way and then you let, then they're like, Oh look, here's so and so. Oh, they've got a puppy with them and then you stop and play with the puppy for ages. And then you walk another two feet and there's another person with a dog and it's just like it's like that all the way around. It's amazing. Oh, amazing it's so cool i think we're going to be working with them and can't wait to do that i think it's gonna be amazing basically they were telling me about their new campaign yeah they're they're really pushing that getting a rescue dog is a really really good thing it's better in a lot of ways to actually get a rescue dog because they've been like vetted by a vet um, and like checked over and all of that sort of stuff so you know that you're getting like a really
1: a a good dog especially if you're getting a puppy or a kitten or something it's good to know it's not been from some farm or something yeah yeah so yeah so absolutely looking forward to to possibly doing something
0: with them and like raising that awareness around all of the amazing stuff that they do that would be super cool so yeah i feel happy just played with puppies all morning amazing i wish i'd been doing that super fun super fun And, and, like, I'm not really a cat person, but on the tour, like, you go through all the cattery. Yeah. And, um, like, yeah, those yeah. kittens were so cute. The thing is,
1: like, I've never been a cat person, and one of my best friends used to work at Battersea, so we got to foster seven kittens for, like, a month or two. It was a long time. Yeah. Um, and I seriously became a cat person then. Just, like, playing with them every day was just yeah. amazing. Also really excited because we've got our second Apple Store Covent Garden
0: Meet Up Rebels in Residence event coming up. Yeah, like super hyped for this guest. Yeah, we're going to be diving into Instagram with Sarah Tasker. She's a bit of an Instagram expert. She's got a book, hashtag Authentic. Yeah, we've done uh, we've done one session so far with Alice Living, and that was super successful. Met loads of you guys, and um, it was so good just like diving into all of your questions and everything, and like actually helping people in real time, which we love. So, um, and we just think that you guys are going to get so much from uh, Sarah Tasker. We'll be posting on our stories on Instagram how you can register to to come along to these events
1: and, and the, yeah this one's in covent garden so hopefully see you guys there yeah, if you're curious about how to smash it on instagram she's literally written a book about it <laughs> yeah another busy week of um people sending us messages i feel like we've received so many messages and reviews this week that are just bloody heartwarming i think is all i'm going to say oh, why is that I think this week specifically has been so many people just telling us they just started their journey because of listening to our podcast and I think that is amazing like it really kind of gives reason and motivation for us doing this to see like we're actually changing people's lives and people are actually putting things into action rather than just thinking about them yeah and I I think you are responsible for
0: what you do it's like it's lovely that you send us a message and say thank you but like you don't need to thank us. Like you did it, yeah, and that's,
1: that's the thing. You're the one who chose to listen to us because you knew what you'd get out of it. You just needed that little push. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's really, it's really inspiring. Like, um, yeah, I see what you mean. Actually, yeah, I, I, one of the, did you read the message from um, the dude who just sold his first print? Yes. Yeah, that was amazing. I think he just set up an Etsy store or something like that, yeah. and uh, and had sold a print and um, was just like, he never, he never thought he would have a creative, uh, creative kind of side. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Side project or something, let alone actually kind of sell making something, making money so, from yeah. doing something that he loved. Yeah, which is amazing. So, um, and
1: and just so much more possible than than a lot of people think. We got another message this week from someone who it was basically it was a lot of questions, so I thought we'd kind of like go through a few of those today because they're all kind of tied around the same kind of thing, which is effectively branding. So she's setting up a business, wants to know how to design a logo that somehow ties into her brand ethos and oh. what it's all about. yeah that's hard getting the logo right is hard it is hard and I think before the logo's even thought about like you just need to make sure your branding's on point like fully understanding like why you're doing it Uh, how can you have branding without a logo Adam I'm glad you asked David a brand a brand is a lot more than just the mark like when you think of Nike you don't just think of a swoosh you think of Everything else that's attract, like, are tied around that, yeah. it's not, like, the swoosh is almost kind of irrelevant. It just shows you, it, like, that swoosh takes on w- way more of a meaning than just the being. Swoosh, the swoosh embodies their whole message and movement. Yeah, and if they wanted to change that, they could, and their mark would stay the same, which is really interesting, because I imagine if you look at them over the years, like, you look at all different companies, like, they're, their strategies and their kind of target audience really changed like especially like if you look at adidas over the past few years they've gone from being something that i kind of saw as like being a bit uncool to really kind of like doing like a lot of use campaigns and becoming like a relevant brand yeah it's amazing isn't it and, and a lot of that's been done through sort of influencer marketing and and the people that they've associated themselves with. Yeah, absolutely. When you start to think of your brand, there's a few questions you need to ask and really get down and, like a solid answer to each of these. Uh, this is what we do when we do branding with people. Firstly, I think working out how your community would describe you, like in a single word. If you can break that down to what your audience would think of you, and like kind of have that word in your head, and then also like your tone of voice. That's really important as well. So like who you're speaking to, how do you want to sound? so many different elements to a brand rather than just an actual visual
0: yeah tone of voice is really important isn't it I think yeah you need to to think of your brand as an as an entity with its own set of rules its own the way it wants people to feel about it and the way that
1: it wants to empower the world and help the clients that it's serving yeah you definitely need to work out your impact I think that's a really important thing too just working out like what your brand is actually doing like if you look at something like Lidl or Aldi their idea is to save you money because that's like they're not trying to be a luxury brand doing a certain thing like they're really specifying in their impact and like when you're starting a brand how will that impact someone else
0: yeah i i, I don't know if it was um i think maybe we were talking with um, Debbie Millman about this off mic but there's the example of of when KFC tried to go for the more like gourmet diners yeah and it just didn't work because that's their product isn't for them and they're, they're much better
1: doubling down on the people that do dig KFC. Yeah, I think when you start anything, just focus on a small audience. If you focus on a small audience and do that really well, then they're your early adopters and everything will grow from there. Think about any new technology that comes into play, like virtual reality, for example, is getting quite popular at the moment. And that will have been from a small bunch of people who are quite techie and picked up that technology early like bought a HTC Five, like when they came out a few yeah. years ago and it's that popularity that then will spread to other people because they'll love it and then tell their friends and then it will slowly spread through word of mouth and because these initial people are doing it the same as that like, Instagram when that started it was for cool people who like taking like f- photos and putting filters over the top and it became a bit of a community and then as people told their friends it grew into what it is today
0: yeah i really want people to use this podcast as a case study the only reason that you dear listener are listening to this right now is because of branding Mm -hmm. i have got there's a couple of people i've got on my linkedin who are posting incredible content that is just as good as the content that we post but no one's really listening to them, and that's because they didn't they didn't brand it correctly. Um, and we've built a, a really large audience through. I mean, there's a number of things that we've done. Firstly, um, I think the fact of of not not needing this to be a money-making venture mm-hmm. has freed us from all of the trappings that come with this thing has to actually make revenue. Yeah. So I've so I've got to drive it down that route, which is really freeing and has allowed us to. To just focus on providing
1: value to the to the end listener yeah it's funny I met someone a couple of weeks ago actually and I was talking about the podcast and how it's doing and they're like oh cool like how do you make money from it and that was their first question they didn't care about anything else it's just like well how can you make money from this and I was like oh well we're not really doing it to make money and they're like well what are you doing it for then and I was like to help people and they are like oh okay that's that's nice but it's like having that kind of core belief and that core ethos of like why you're doing something. I think we've brand that. But then, I mean, I think it's important to to mention that like the podcast has made
0: money. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you and I weren't employed, it would be enough money for you and me to just about survive on. Yeah, And that's really interesting to consider is that you can start a podcast and it can be your living. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's not something that, that we've chosen to do. So literally this podcast started with zero listeners and we had to present it in a way that said these are people that you need to listen to we needed to convince our guests of that so that we got big name guests and we had to convince our listeners and that that just came down to branding and and look at what we've done look at our logos look at our our feed on instagram look at our website like yeah everything is uniform we have like a, a a strong logo that kind of says that we're disruptive the logo doesn't make sense mathematically so i don't make sense mathematically so, <laughs> so that, that that works well and that was that was kind of in the beginning that was we that was the first thing that we did is like how is this going to look and and the way that we did that was by looking at other podcasts, knowing that we wanted this to be a number one podcast and saying, well, what does a number one podcast look like? And what's our version of that? Because I don't think we look like any other podcasts.
1: However, we, we still fit within the bracket. Yeah. I think, and then coming back to the original question about how do you make a logo that ties in with that eth- ethos? It's like, as long as the iconography is unique, it's the brand that brings the meaning to it. It's like the Nike swoosh, is just a tick yeah it doesn't mean anything yeah but it's all the brand and all the meaning and everything else behind it that gives you that meaning so when you're designing a logo it doesn't have to say if you're a tea company that only sources ethically kind because of have the world in there and some exactly. hands holding the world and
0: everything looking beautiful and ethical yeah. yeah because when people learn your brand they'll associate it with you it's like it's like apple the it's an yeah. apple, and it doesn't make me think of fruit when I see it. It makes me think of sleek design, like curved corners. Yeah. It's it's all synonymous with with Apple and and the rebel the rebellness of
1: Apple and the rule breaking and all of yeah. that stuff that they've stood from from the very beginning. Yeah, I think the graffiti life logo is a really interesting example because when we started, we had no clue about branding. We just designed something that we kind of that said roughly what we were. And then just put it out there and just started. We didn't spend too much time worrying about it. I think branding is all about getting a community together around a certain belief and ethos. And talking to today's guest, like, was literally mind-blowing for me. Everything that I'd learned about marketing, talking to Will Store to, like... It was just everything, all the kind of like science behind it has just come together and it's just absolutely amazing. Well, so
0: I'll let the listeners in on a little secret. After this episode, um, after we finished recording this episode, uh, Adam said, I have to go home and lie down because uh, it over, overblown. It, <laughs> over- it literally blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, I was actually nervous before we recorded this episode. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, don't you remember? I was like... I was like panicking and going, I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm, our questions are not good enough. And yeah,
1: like, is he just too clever for me? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I was, I've never felt like, like that. I've never felt nervous doing any of these before, um, apart from like maybe our very first episode, which the nerves went like straight away. Um, I was super nervous inter- interviewing Will just because I like his brain is such a goldmine that could be so useful to so many of our listeners that I just wanted to make sure I got the absolute most out of him Um, I think he's I think he's going to be absolutely huge I know he's done Russell Brand's podcast um, but I can see I could see in the future him being on like Rogan and like really really kind of going international um, because I just think his books are so fucking important Mm -hmm like i've never i've never read anything and i mean i kept sending you like um messages about you've got to get these books you've got to yeah, get these yeah, books yeah, like yeah. i've not read heretics yet um but i read selfie which as soon as i read selfie i was like we have to get this guy on the podcast um and then after that i read the science of storytelling which is his new book um and we delve into that in into the episode so yeah fascinating stuff um and i think this is going to be uh, a favorite episode for a lot yeah, of people it's i think so valuable Will Storr is an award-winning writer. He's written fiction and non-fiction and over the years has become an expert in storytelling itself. Um, For years, and we talk about this in the episode, for years Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey has been used as the kind of way to craft a perfect story. And in recent years, there's been attempts to try and crack the bestseller code. Um, But what Will does is actually approaches things from a different angle by looking at the actual science behind stories and why we tell them to ourselves and to others. It turns out that we can learn a lot from the ultimate storyteller, which is the human brain.
1: In this episode, we talk about storytelling, neuroscience and the importance of status.
2: got to find something to say yeah one of the ways you get status in the creative arts is by breaking the rules and doing something new but often you can only really do that if you if you've worked out the rules first and worked out why the rules are the rules
0: hi will hi thanks for doing our podcast thanks for having me welcome my first question to you is, are you a perfectionist? Uh,
2: yes, I'm a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're going to ask me what that means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah so, so, so one of the technical definitions of a perfectionist, the one that I kind of go to, is it's somebody that ha- is unusually sensitive to signals of failure in their environment. So it's very easy to be kind of triggered into feeling like a failure. So that constantly pushes you on, pushes you on want to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing so you're constantly proving yourself to yourself to other people to everyone and i think that's especially in the creative industries i think that's quite it's very common mindset and i think it's becoming more well it is becoming more common too that's what the, the science is telling us that we're living in an environment these days uh, in the 21st century, which is full of signals of failure. There's, there's so many ways that we can feel like we've failed and we've not been this perfect person. And so there was an amazing study that was done by psychologists from the University of Bristol that was published a couple of years ago. 40,000 people, that they looked at data from 40,000 people in the UK, the US and Canada. And since the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, that, yeah, levels of perfectionism have, have gone up. Rapidly, and there's one particularly toxic form of affection, of so called social perfectionism, which has gone up around 30 percent, and that's the one that's implicated in things like suicide. So, yeah, I'm a perfectionist, and probably so are you, is my answer. So, what is social perfection? So, social, so there's all different kinds of perfectionism. The, the perfectionism that people generally think of when they think of perfectionism is I have high standards of perfection in myself which is not high standards of perfection it's high standards of that I have to meet in order to feel okay yeah like you, 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 you know and to not beat myself up and social perfectionism is a kind of version of that but, but but you're constantly looking at other people I have to prove myself to this person and this person and this person has various expectations of me as a father as a Employee as a son, as a brother, and if I don't meet their expectations, then I feel like a failure. And it's particularly toxic because we're imagining what they're thinking of us. And we tend to imagine worse than is actually true. Um, and, and so social perfectionism is thought to be particularly um, salient for, for men for some reason. And lots of people know these days that male suicide, around 80% of suicides are male, and that's, a, that, that's consistent across the West. And one of the ideas behind that is that men, are, especially middle-aged men, are particularly kind of prone to this. The, we have to feel like we're a success. We have to feel like we're a good dad. We have to feel like we're wealthy. We ha- you know, we, it's just the list goes on and on and on and on.
0: And is that because when we're in our twenties, we feel like we have time to achieve these things. And by the time we hit 40, it's, why well, is it specifically that age?
2: Yeah, you think I, that- I'm, I remember um, going to therapy in my twenties and to, uh, just after I finished my first book. And, and, and um, I'd been to this thing, which I now know is common with all authors, is they write a book, they're really excited about it they read it for the first time and then they go, oh my God, this is the worst book I've ever yeah. read. Like, it, I, I didn't know it then, but this is what you always think. And I said to him, God, you know, I thought this book was going to be really good and it's bloody terrible. And he said to me, oh, you know, um, when you're in your twenties, you're full of the possibilities of the world and you're, you're discovering your own powers. But as you start getting older, that's when you start discovering your limits. And I thought, God, that is, that's, what you, that's why you pay a therapist. <laughs> you know, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's really true. And middle age is tough. Because it is, as middle ages when you realise that all those dreams you had, you're not going to be Beyonce, you're not going to be Gore Vidal, you know, you're putting on weight, you're losing your hair, you know, it's, there's just this sort of cumulative, uh, you start staring down a barrel of 50. So yeah, I, I think middle age is a particularly dangerous time for perfectionism because a lot of the hope goes.
1: How do you stop being a perfectionist? I suppose this is a question you probably must be asking yourself all the time.
2: I think the really important thing is to understand this idea of the perfect self that you have in your head yeah. is a lie. Mm-hmm. It's not true. And it's a particularly toxic lie in our kind of current culture because we live in this very individualist culture. It's partly it's youth-obsessed, you know, so we're constantly being shown images of youth in our culture. But I also think it's, it, it, it's, that it's kind of founded on this lie of that we have complete control over who we are that we are these um We have, humans have infinite potential and that when we're kids, we're told by well-meaning parents and teachers, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anyone you want to be. And we believe it. And it's very empowering to be told that, but it's also very dangerous because it's not true. It's literally not true. We are genetically limited in different ways. Every single one of us, we have certain personalities, certain abilities, a certain level of IQ. And by the time we're kind of in our twenties, it's pretty much fixed. We're going to change in various predictable ways as we get older. You can't suddenly decide to become Gandhi. I went to a self-help group for research, and um, I didn't get this in my book, but, but he said, actually, I think I might have done but kind of obliquely. At the end of this self-help weekend, he said, um, Gandhi had 24 hours in his day, and so do you. So what's stopping you? And everybody went, yeah, oh, yeah, and you, lay, you leave thinking, I'm going to be Gandhi. And then you realise, you know, three three weeks later that you're not Gandhi. You're still... You're still fat, <laughs> and, um, and, and it's depressing. But that's the lie of our culture. That's the lie of Western individualistic, especially in neoliberal culture, that we have. To, that we're constantly being told this live, you can do anything you want to do and be anyone you want to be. And you, but you can't be. So we're all setting ourselves up for a fall. We're all we're all being told we can be perfect, and when we fail to be perfect, we blame ourselves. So that's, that's
0: very interesting, given that the kind of overarching theme of our podcast is to encourage creative people to reach their potential. And we are very guilty of saying, we did it, so you can do it. And I've heard you talk <laughs> yeah. about that before, yeah. of the, uh, that person can do it, so I can do it. And mm. that being c- kind of a dangerous trope. But so then what do what would you then say to say like say you've got kids do you then tell them straight away from when they're young you will never be Beyonce <laughs> or do you do you see what I mean it's like we, we like our mission with this podcast is to try and empower people yeah. and to get them if they're stuck in a shit job that they hate to get them to think well if I work three three years on my side hustle that might become yeah. a, an outlet and I might be able to do something and we've certainly had failures along the way and yeah. a lot of luck and so it's, um, I don't know what I'm really asking you. No, but- no, I
2: get it, I get it. So, so one of the, I think one of the really important things, there's a kind of way that we think about the truth and the way that we think about facts in the world and that and that is that there is such a thing as the perfect truth. And we're always looking for the answer, is this thing good or is it bad? And most things are not good or bad, they're a trade-off. And this is one of them, you know. So, so the question is, is telling our kids they can do anything good or bad? And the, and the answer, the kind of frustratingly, Kind of a bleak answer is it's both. It's good and it's, bad. it's very empowering, but it's also dangerous. So there's no there's no right or wrong answer. There's no you should or you shouldn't do it. But, but but there is a just be cautious. And so one of the things that psychologists say is that is that it's really great to reward your kids when they show effort, and it's really great to see what your kids are really interested and really passionate about, yeah. and, and and push them in those directions. You know, I had these parents that just made me because they, they, they were my, my parents were both music teachers uh, and um, they both made me take piano lessons and I hate piano lessons I was crap at it I was rubbish at it and I remember just getting in so much trouble like to the extent where I ran away from home when I was a kid because I was too scared to come back because I couldn't play this thing on the piano and it's like that's what you shouldn't do because I had no interest in playing the fucking yeah. piano and so that's that that's the mistake and so one of the things that I've kind of taken away from all the research that I've done that's really stayed with me is this kind of fundamental about what all humans are seeking and there are two really because we're a tribal kind of ape we're an ape that that is that and our kind of superpower is we're amazingly cooperative we've really mastered the art of division of labor and so we have these kind of we've evolved in these groups and one of the things that we seek is connection with our group we all want to you know, connection with a, with a group. And like the graffiti world's a group, it's a culture, it's a scene and you want to be, you feel connected in it. But the other thing that we want that we don't really talk about that much because it feels a bit, feels a bit sort of negative or cynical is status. So as soon as we, as soon as we want to feel, be connecting to a group, we want to feel like we're, we have some position in that group. Nobody wants to be in the bottom of their group. <laughs> we all want to feel like we're better than average. We're better than the average sum of the group. And I think that's, the, that's one of those human fundamentals that we don't really think about enough. So when we've got kids And and we're trying to work out how to talk to them about the world, how to talk to them about how to be happy and and kind of thrive. That's why the Beyonce thing is so bad, because what we're telling them is that you have to compete with everyone in the world. You have to compete with the best people in the world in order to gain status. And it's not true. Somebody can decide to be a, a Matchbox car collector, and that can be their passion, and they can collect Matchbox cars, and they can be in the Matchbox car scene, and they can buy the 1956, I don't know, you know, police car and that's the great thing to have and that gives them status and that's that's good too. So, so so I think the kind of the secret is that we all need to find a little corner of the world in which we can feel like we've got a bit of status yeah. and it might be Beyonce, but it might also be we're in the congregation of the local church and that's what gives our lives meaning and that's what gives us a sense of status because we're the ones, I don't know, cleaning up after, I don't know, whatever people do in churches, I don't know what they do in churches. <laughs> but you know, it, it can be all those things and, it, and, and it's funny because... You grew up. And you condescend to things like hobbies and churches and stuff, but but it, they're just human groups, and they're there to give people a sense of connection and status. And so that, that that that's kind of what we all need, and that's I think that's what we should be thinking about when raising children: is like, what's the, what's the group my child wants to be a part of, and how can I encourage them into that group and give them the tools by which they can feel like they're an important member of that group?
0: Yeah, which is much more empowering than the sort of bleak notion of. You have a potential, and you will never like. And the, and that that's a. R- no, it's not potential. not the right word, is it? That you that there's a ceiling to your
1: achievements and yeah.
0: and letting that kind of suppress you. I suppose.
1: I suppose aiming for your ceiling. I suppose is the best thing rather than aiming for absolute overall domination. Because I mean, with with you, obviously in your twenties when you were
0: on drugs and alcoholic, <laughs> and I've done my research. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, if I went back to and spoke to you when you were twenty and said, "This is it. This is as good as it gets." I mean, you you've like you're a best-selling author and you've written five books and you've worked for that you've written for the guardian and the new york times and all of these you've you've achieved all of these great things so you must have felt that you were capable of doing great things in order to achieve them
2: it's kind of a weird one that i never really that's the thing about these these little groups you, you move up the groups so initially I, I really wanted to be i had no as you said, as i said no talent for for, for music but i but i want to be part of the music that we had a big thriving music scene yeah. a venue and so i got my center status by doing the fanzine that everyone read and interviewed all the local bands and ha- and i helped with a local like a hip-hop label i used to help out with and then then from that i got work at a magazine so suddenly you're in a new little group and suddenly i was competing on a different level because i'm competing with national magazine writers and then I wrote a book and then suddenly you're competing on another little level so it's, it's weird i never if you were to tell me when i was 16 that i was one day going to have published a novel because that was my big dream i'd have I'd have thought well my life's, that's it I don't have to be unhappy ever again because my life is complete but of course that's not, not how it works because that's the thing about status is that you can never really have enough it's this endless game that we play that as soon as we as soon as we get the thing that we've been looking for, we're just looking at the next thing and and, and that's that's frustrating in a way, but it's also fantastic because it, it's what keeps us going it's what keeps life interesting yeah and I think that's why things like retirement are so so awful. You you hear these stories of people retiring and then just toppling over six months later because they're out of the game now. They're not playing that status game anymore and I think it's really deadly for people. So it's it's good, it's kind of good that we never, we always want to go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because otherwise, what else is there? There's nothing, there's just stasis. Like you, you, you don't want that. But I think obviously, that, like anything, that can become pathological, it can become toxic. It, you know, if we, if we fall for that, well, I should be able, I mean, like, you know, I'm an author but there are a zillion authors who are I'm, you know, I'm very aware of the authors who are selling more than me and are in, in my peer group. You know, I feel like an idiot compared to them, and you know, and you know, and, and, you know, and, and like anybody, you kind to of obsess, obsess. well, have they got this, and I oh, haven't got this, and that's that's just what motivates you, pushes you, pushes you on. But you've got, I think, you've got to have that sense of distance. You Don't get sucked into it too much. That you realize it's just a game, as, as the great Bill Hicks said. It is just a game. It's just a ride, and don't try not to take it too seriously.
0: Yeah, Um so what? Where then would your advice be to to say say to a young writer who's just starting their their career? Like, yeah. how would you go about knowing what you know? I feel like that's it's quite difficult for you to give advice because you've got so much um, almost weight behind knowing all of the science that's going into our decisions. And yeah,
2: I, I think for writers specifically, the, the I, I think the, the mistake I made and, and the mistake a lot of writers who I was in my twenties with made was was that you want it or too soon. And what you want is that you want to be A.A. Gill or Catelyn Moran, and you're just not, you're not there yet. <laughs> and so so what happens is you overwrite, you're too ambitious. You try and break the, break the rules all the time and end up just writing gobbledygook. And, and, I, and I think the, the mistake that I made was not actually doing the hard yards and learning the craft of it first. You've got to find something to say. Yeah, And, and you, I think like, all, like any creative pursuits, you want to one of the ways you get status in the creative arts, whether it's graffiti or writing, whatever it is, is that is by breaking the rules and doing something new. But often you can only really do that if you if you've worked out the rules first and worked yeah. out why the rules are the rules. If you get what I mean, there there are very few kind of prodigies who just come along at 23 and just manage to break all the rules and do something amazing straight away.
1: I think you've definitely got to learn your craft fully before you start to break off. Like whatever you're doing, like learn it and master it and then create your own thing out of the back of it.
2: Yes. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think anyone can be a storyteller? Yeah, I think so. They, They can because storytelling is what we're doing all the time anyway. Like story isn't something that was invented by kind of Charles Dickens or Charlotte Bronte, or whoever, or Homer. You know, the brain is the storyteller. We, we, we're living in a story every single day. That, that, that there's this great line by this very famous British neuroscientist called Professor Chris Frith, and he says that the trick the brain makes is to make us the invisible actor at the centre of the world, and that's what it does. That's how we. That's what gets out how, how we get out of bed in the morning. You know, we, it, it kind of puts us at the middle of the middle of the world, makes us feel like the most important thing in the world. That the whole world is universe is revolving around us, and gives us these goals to strike out for and obstacles to jump over and villains to vanquish and allies to help us along the way. So the stories that we tell in fiction are constructed in the same way as the the story that the brain tells of our everyday existence. And so it's like the story... People, sometimes you hear it said that the, the, the self is a story and that sounds like this kind of very woo-woo kind of Deepak Chopra <laughs> kind of ridiculous thing to say but it's really true and, and to understand how it's true you've got to reverse it it's not, it's not that the, the brain mimics stories it's that stories mimic the brain the, re, the reason we tell stories in the way that we do is because it, it, it kind of mimics the way the brain processes reality and, that, and that's how we understand stories because it, they, it, they make intuitive sense to us
0: Yeah. And the fact that, um, because I've heard you talk about this before, that our brain's encased in a, so our brain is, is interpreting the world, but has never seen the world. The brain has never been outside of our head. So it's only getting the signals that we're inputting to it.
2: Yeah, that's the one, that's one of the kind of really disturbing things about neuroscience, and, and it's one of the things that once you know it, it's very it's it's, <laughs> pretty, well, it's kind of weird because you know it's true, but you, you can't you can't absorb it because it's too weird, so you just instantly kind of forget it, and that and that's that's the fact that yeah that we don't have any direct access to reality, that the brain is encased in in the skull, and what happens is that information from the from reali- outside reality hits the senses, and the senses just gets this kind of white noise, this storm of information which it translates into billions and billions of electrical pulses. And the brain reads these electrical pulses in a similar way to a computer reading code and conjures this hallucination for us and says, this is real. But it's not, it's not real in the sense that our eyes aren't windows. I mean, if you think about it, it's obvious. Information only comes in one way, and that's in. So we're not looking out of anything. And so, of course, that, 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 that raises all these mad existential questions like, how do we know what's going on around our bodies? So one of the kind of crazy things to, to find out is that our eyes, what we think our eyes are these windows we're just looking out at the world. It's not. Our eyes are, are a bit crap. They only give very limited and partial information to the brain. And, and they're only able to pick up one ten trillionth of the available light spectrum. So there's all this stuff going on around us all the time. We just can't see it. Like a black and white TV can't pick up colour. We just can't see it. We haven't got that. We, we, like any, any animal, we can only experience the stuff that's essential for our survival. Um, so, so a couple of the ramifications of this is that the first stance, There's no color in the real world. So, color is a special effect. If you outside our bodies, there's no color. Atoms don't have a color. Um, what happens is that light waves hit the eye, and, and and our kind of visual equipment measures the length of the wave. Mm-hmm. And depending on the length of the wave, it just goes. Well, that's a red. That's a blue. That's a brown. And it paints it onto reality as a special effect in order to help us interact with the. Uh, with the world more easily one of the kind of dominant theories is that it evolved when we were in the trees living on berries and we could it was so we could tell what's a right berry and what's not a right berry another one is sound like if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it does it make a sound and the answer is no there are changes in air pressure and vibrations in the ground but the sound is is another special effect conjured by the brain to help us avoid falling trees So, 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 so there's no sound out there either so for a long time neuroscientists just assumed that reality we must have a pretty good idea of what reality is actually like just so to survive but but increasingly neuroscientists are beginning to argue that that's not true at all and what one of these guys uh, I read recently he, he compares our our View of reality to the, to an iPhone screen and says that you're, you, that's the iPhone screen with the with the colorful app icons. Mm-hmm. Reality is the reams and reams of computer code underneath it, and we we just it just shows us the minimally complex you know um, summation of all that incredible complexity just so we can interact with it. So you, you just sort of flips you out if you were, <laughs> if you're <not> too much. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, one of the things about colour, which which really freaks me out, is that is that every colour that we see is is a combination of one of three colours because we've got these three colour cones in the back of our eyes. So it uses those like crayons to like paint everything. And some birds and insects have six or seven colour cones. So you can imagine the the world that they experience is this multi 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 coloured world. Like bees can see the electromagnetic structure of the sky. I mean, you you can't even imagine that.
1: Hey, that's amazing.
2: there will probably be a chip one day
0: that will pop into our heads, yes. so we'll be able to see it all. B vision, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our brains are um, crazy. So, if we are living in a hallucination, then is storytelling our way of making sense of this information that's coming into us?
2: Well, with the hallucination is the is the, is the set, it's, it's the film set of the story of your life. So, and it's more than that. It's it's your sense of self too. So, you're in the middle of this. Kind of story world and yes yeah, so it's so one of the things that's interesting is that is is that um, our kind of perception orients itself around the goals so in story the story tends to follow a protagonist on a goal you know Luke, Luke skywalker trying to find the force or whatever that goal is and it's the same for us when we are moving around the world when it's raining and you look out and you're in the street suddenly you see the world in terms of places of shelter, That's, so our our perception and our orient itself around our goals. And there's a a, a very well known but kind of mad phenomenon in psychology known as change blindness because we are so focused on our goals we, we we don't we don't notice like massive changes, things that have changed. And um, one of the ones it's always in the Daily Mail they're always doing this. The the, the, the subtext of the story always is how stupid men are, <laughs> and, and and what they do is they get um, a woman to ask a man directions. And then he's giving directions, and then they, the woman ducks behind a counter or something, and and then her identical twin comes up with a complete different set of clothes on, and the men the men never notice. And it's not that men are stupid; yeah. it's just that, that we we can only see the hallucination that we've only got a certain bandwidth. And if if there are too many things going on outside that bandwidth, we just we're just not aware of it. They just become invisible to us. So in the science of storytelling book, I talk about this. Study that they did looking at change blindness in in police officers and they found that I forget the exact numbers but but at least I think something like a third of experienced police officers and more than that of trainee officers failed to see a gun a weapon in open on, on, on a dashboard in a simulated police stop because there was there was all these other things going on and yeah. their perception just didn't see it so it's it's a serious business <laughs> change blindness. Does there ways to take advantage of that. Yeah, well, I think that's what Darren uh, Darren Brown is is really good at doing that stuff. I remember we did it earlier, but the series, the season of one of the, his first shows on Channel Four. There was the thing where he he managed to get bookies at a racetrack to pay him money yeah. by um, overloading their. I think there's like five or six things we can be centre. So he asked lots of different questions, banged on the side of the, the their window, and then that distracted them, and they said, "Oh, you, you were just paying me out for this thing," and. I... Oh, okay. Okay. And and so I, I'm. I obviously I don't know how that worked, but it seems to me that he was just overloading their perceptual kind of bandwidth, yeah. and then they just flip into this automatic. Yeah, you can see they're just confused at the time, and they're just they're just sort of grappling for what am I supposed to be doing? What's going on? It's incredible,
0: isn't it? I've seen him pay for pay for things with um, like they were the same size and shape as a, of a dollar bill, but completely blank and white, and just just pay for things with those and completely
1: get away with it. Wow. I think I think I'm been buying a cake or something, and he was like, "Oh, here's fifty dollars." And it was just a piece of paper, and they said, "Okay, bye and he walked out. And said, <laughs> yeah, but there must
0: be something else going on there because my friend tried it on a train. You know, she had <laughs> she had the wrong ticket, and she'd just seen this Darren Brown thing. Yeah, and he just quite easily went, "Oh yeah, it's fine. Just take this," and he offered the verbal command just take this yeah and uh, so she tried it with her ticket she was like oh yeah here's my ticket just take that mm. and the guy was like well this is from yesterday
2: <laughs> and she totally got busted she yeah. was like
0: fuck i thought it was Darren brown and but, it didn't uh, work yeah because
2: i think i think what he's doing is lo- he, 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 maybe they're not showing it all is there's lots of stuff going on deliberately to distract this poor guy and so when he's being told just take this he just because he's what's yeah, going just on the last I remember part specifically her. with the guarantee with the thing he's he's Slapped his hand up against the side of the booth, and and that was the kind of final distraction. And then they're in this kind of discombobulated state. And it's terrifying, isn't it? Because we
0: we like to think that we are not to be taken advantage of. And I like to think, oh, if I was walking down the street and someone tried to to fool me into doing something, <laughs> that I wouldn't fall for yeah. it. But I mean, people going to to jail for murders that they haven't committed that have been basically, it's been implanted into their head that they've they have committed this crime, and yeah. then they've then believed it
2: that's it false confessions is a real thing people are you know people are worn down in interview in interrogations aren't they and they confess to crimes they haven't done it's it's quite ex- extraordinary but that's yeah, yeah
0: and we are much more susceptible i think than than we actually think we are and i suppose again that's the the story of self of of ego of thinking that we can't be fooled and when really because there's another Darren brown one where he can perfectly predict what you're going to draw on this tablet but that's because he's been implanting the clues for a week beforehand and then they show the behind yeah. the scenes and yeah. you've been driving past posters and is there's been radio ads coming on and all of these things to implant the the stuff in your head but it just goes to show how manipulative yeah. our our brain is
2: yeah, there was one, there they they were, was an advertising agency where they all came up with exactly the same... Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the one I'm thinking yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> and he had them on the, on, in the cab on the way to the meeting and there was a, a man in the bear costume crossing the zebra crossing. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's incredible stuff. It's, um, it's spooky. So... Um, I was really paranoid before this because we want to talk about science of storytelling um but because I've quite recently read selfie as well and I feel like they're so closely tied so yeah, are, yeah. so when I'm pulling bits out I'm not sure so it's I know right. you've <laughs> I know you've spoken about the um, people going to jail I can't remember where it's from selfie or from mm. storytelling so apologies when I do that but yeah the two books I feel are are I feel like science of storytelling was it was the obvious next step um, yeah And do you feel like that? Yeah,
2: well, The Science of Storytelling is based on The Heretics and Selfie. Because The Heretics and Selfie ended up both being books really about the storytelling brain and the self. And and, um, I felt like they were kind of two halves of the same puzzle, and I really wanted to put them together in, in one place.
0: So heretics focused more on well, the way we described it earlier was clever people believing wacky ideas.
2: Yeah, and clever people end up believing wacky ideas because the brain is this hero maker. It's it, um, uh, it's yeah, it, 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 the most important thing for a healthy brain is to keep uh, alive that delusion that we are good, correct people who are correcting all our beliefs. You know, so so so, so we believe what we believe largely. Through instinct, so a lot of that is 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 down to past experience, but a lot of it's also down to genes. Like we know that people with a certain genotype are more likely to vote left wing, who are more high in the trait of openness, and the people who are more high in the trait of conscientiousness are more likely to vote right wing. So, so a lot of our kind of deepest political beliefs actually are, are a product of the, the way our genome is, and 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 so, so so really we're moving around the world, reacting emotionally to stuff, and then. And you went undercover with the racists. For, yeah, that's right. For that. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, so, so which so, must have been terrifying. Yeah, right? so, so on top of on top of all those instinctive beliefs, is this story of well, I'm a hero. So and so we, we 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 go out on this kind of cognitive mission, looking for reasons why those beliefs are true. And so yeah, so so I spent um, a week undercover with David Irving, who's this. Um, revisionist historian that you probably heard of who, who um again really smart man used to be used to be very well respected as a as a historian if you read the book slaughterhouse five he's, his name dropped in there as this respectable amazing historian who who, who you know we know about the Dresden in because of david irving's scholarship and then he's gone on this weird journey and, and he's gone on this weird journey that's taken into this belief that the holocaust was the work of all the people around hitler but hitler didn't know anything about it and in fact Hitler was a friend of the Jews, that's what he believes. So it's a mad, it's a mad idea, but he really sincerely believes it to the extent where he actually went to prison for his beliefs. So is a, a man in his 70s, he went to, he was, went to prison in Austria because he refused to um, pretend not to believe what he believed. On that trip, one of the sort of big light bulb moments for me was that um, I heard somebody say, we were in the Hitler's old sort of, sort of woodland bunker where Hitler used to kind of hang out. And I heard somebody, one of these... He was a proper Nazi, the actual Nazi, not one of these Twitter, like, Nazis in the vertical... like a proper Nazi. Yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, you know, even when I was, like, nine years old, I remember like looking at all these toys and thinking, oh, I like the, I like the Germans. This Australian guy. And I thought, isn't it interesting that when he was nine,
1: yeah, before he knew
2: anything about the world, anything about the war, he already believed this stuff. And so what's happened... He's, he's, he he decided for some reason at nine that the Nazis were were right about stuff, and and ever since then he's been on this cognitive mission to look for evidence that he's right yeah. and undermine all the evidence for the people that he's wrong. And and you know and and I'm no different. Like I remember my first ever strong political conviction when I was about twelve or thirteen, and my friend Carl. I remember was in art class with him at my, my comprehensive school, and 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 I was a sort of low middle class kid, and he was a working class kid. He said, if I was going to vote in this election, I'd vote for Maggie Thatcher. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely furious. Like, I just felt this rage rising up. And I didn't know anything about politics. All I knew was that Maggie Thatcher was evil. And my parents were like liberal Democrats, so like, you know, centre-left people. And here I am at the age of 44, still a, still a centre-left person. I haven't changed my political beliefs hardly at all. I've just spent the last, you know, 30 years... Look, looking out into the world and seeing evidence that I'm right, discounting yeah. all the evidence that I'm wrong.
0: But people can
2: change. They can, yeah, they can change. They, they, they can change. they can change. They can change. So one of the ways that pe- people often tend to kind of go more right-wing as they get older, there are lots of different kind of theories about what, why that might be, But it, but it tends to be a gradual thing. And of course... Some people change radically. They, they, you know, they 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 they, are, they they brought up Christians and they completely renounce it. So yeah. of course that that of course that happens. But but the the general rule is that we don't massively change unless something really significant happens to us.
0: It makes me think of um, John Cleese recently being uh, on Twitter and 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 really sad that sort of all of these comedians coming out being like you were my comedy hero, but yeah. now you're just slightly racist, out of touch old man. Yes. Um, but the. The tweets are are that, are exactly what you say. They are him justifying to himself why he's right. Yeah. And him explaining, I think the tweet is something like, um, uh, London doesn't feel like a British city anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've said this before um, and all of my friends agree. And it's it's like, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I must be right because other people... Well, and agree he's agree with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: But that's it. I mean, and, and that's what, I mean, that's kind of, that is generally what we're all doing all the time. It's just, it's... It's that whole idea of confirmation bias. We, we feel like we're going on a sincere cognitive mission to, to to find the truth about certain facts, but we're not. We, what we're doing is we, we, we look. looking... They call it the make-sense-stopping rule. We, we, we look out into the world in order to find the first thing that justifies our belief, and then we go, oh, that makes sense, and we stop thinking about it. So, so, so that's one of the interesting things about intelligence. So intelligence... Um, intelligence makes you better at finding reasons to back up your instinctive beliefs. It doesn't make you any better at finding counter-arguments. So intelligence is no inoculation against crazy beliefs. In fact, it actually, makes, it actually can make those crazy beliefs curve to an even worse degree because you, you, you're like this brilliant lawyer, really fantastically good. I mean, you go on YouTube and look at some of these you know, ideologues on there, like a, say Ben Shapiro, I'm no fan at all of Ben Shapiro, he's way to the right. Um, of, of me but but he's a he's an extremely bright individual he's very he, he's a lawyer i think or he was a lawyer you know he's he so he's really good at going out into the world of finding evidence that he's right and 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 so that that's what we that that's what we all do and and one of the one of the kind of things that that, that i've had to sort of begrudgingly admit is that is that I, I really think it's true that the left and the right don't have it neither of them have any it's ownership over the truth. I, I think that the, the left have part of the truth and the right have part of the truth. And what happens is that they both kind of act in denial of the other of the other side of the story. And that's where the that's why these clashes happen, because it, it's because we, we, we refuse to allow the other side Any part of being correct, we have to... It's that black and white... It's the storytelling brain again. They're the villain. It's not that they're wrong. It's not that they've made an honest mistake. It's certainly not that we're wrong. It's that they're evil. They're awful people. They're terrible people. And that's that's storytelling. The only people that are evil are psychopaths. These are the people without empathy they're a minority you know they're a minority of a minority they're not particularly interesting people outside of horror movies most of us vast majority of us we we want the best for the world but we have very different ideas about how the world works and we've spent our entire lives seeing evidence that we're right so we end up stuck in these stories
1: with your knowledge of that has that changed the way you think about things or are you still yeah
2: massively yeah so i don't i never tweet about politics or anything like that anymore because i just think it's 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 pointless and uh, i find all that and it's partly being a journalist when you're a journalist you, you get a, you get the kind of a, the sense of how complex reality actually is like i remember i used to work for a magazine called arena which has sort of gone bust but it's kind of like a gq kind of magazine. Yeah, I remember my, my first ever story for arena was it, we had a one page kind of newsy quick q a like quick Briefing kind of page. I don't forget what it was called, and it was actually on um, should we be part of the EU or not. Like, what is the issue of it? And I spent a week researching this thing, speaking to all the experts. It's a journey to get access to these brilliant people on all sides of the debate. And I, and I still, after a week of full research, I had no idea. It was so complicated, and and yet we're supposed to vote on it and and decide. People who don't have the benefit of a week access to all the experts. Yeah. So, so so these are incredibly kind of kind of complex questions that people people act as if they have absolute certainty about what they're talking about and so you're in this weird position uh, the Brexit is one of those ones where I cannot understand the position of people who want to leave the EU I I, I just I know that they sincerely believe it I cannot understand it I just cannot I can't work it out but I know that they can't work out what i think too so so you've got you, you end up in this weird kind of dual place where you you feel yourself getting morally outraged you feel yourself getting frustrated you hear yourself saying oh what a dickhead what a wanker Farage is but at the same time you're thinking ah you know it's almost like this buddhist thing where, you, where you're watching yourself react at a distance and not taking it so seriously because it's like wow well, this is just how the brain works, isn't it? So it's this weird, it's this kind of, it's kind of slightly odd thing where I I, I don't feel as uh, engaged politically as I used to. I, I still have the same psychological experiences, but I know that it's just all just noise and fuss. That-
0: and I think with social media giving everyone a voice, it's now because I I was completely baffled by Brexit because I, like you say, there's intelligent people on both sides, yeah. and I I'd, I'd listened to uh, a Remain video and then i'd watch a a leave video and i don't know anything about economics i don't know anything about world trade i don't know anything about all of these agreements and things that they were talking about both sides sounded really convincing yeah and i i just don't know and so then it just becomes this tribal thing of half of the country voted with and then googled like the highest google search terms the day after were what is brexit and these are people that have voted to fundamentally change our country and yeah. didn't actually know what they were voting for because yeah. it just became well, it's tribal. very tribal. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: tribal, yeah. So one of, that's one of the interesting things is that because we're these tribal animals, um, y- you'd think that that people believe the things that are in their own self-interest, but actually we don't. We It's, it's kind of a weird way around. We, we tend to believe... The thing that our our group believes, so we tend to just copy what everybody else in our in the group that we identify as our group b- believes, and it's a kind of it is a kind of self interest because because what's good for our group tends to be what's good for us, that, and that's why you see people that. It was always a puzzle. To, before I knew this, it was always a puzzle to me why do the working class people still often vote for right wing parties because they're the ones that are destroying the welfare state and you're benefiting. from I don't get it, right? Mm. Um, uh, but it, because it's it's the group interest thing. It's 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 that it's that kind of group identity that's dominant, and, and I think that was massively dominant in during Brexit. It's that kind of, um, and I'm going to sort of slip into it now, but it is, it just feels like it's that kind of slightly right wing uh, people who tend to identify with the with their kind of nationalistic ideals. Like John Cleese, he'll walk around London and, and it will become salient to him that there's not that there's not so many white people around and there's lots of different cultures around and that'll make him feel uncomfortable. I mean, he's from a different era, he's from a different generation. So be fine. You feel that way. But I don't. I walk around here and go, cool, this is this like is being, This yeah. is great, yeah. This is great for like <laughs> a holiday. You know? That's, <laughs> how, that's how, that <laughs> how I feel. Um, uh, and it's easy to be smug about this, but this is just the brain I was born with. My parents are both left-wing people, so it's just... Uh, you know, it's just who I am. It's not like I'm better than than the, the John Cleese. He, he, he went to Oxbridge or whatever. He's from probably from a traditional right-wing family, and that's who he's grown up being. It's it's about the values of your group, uh, and, and you just slot into the values of your group because we're tribal that's how our brains are the, the trap that you fall into and that people just implicitly believe is that people choose their beliefs as if they're in a supermarket choosing which melon to buy and it's not how it is our beliefs our beliefs happen to us and then we just justify them
1: yeah. it reminds me of um seth godin's latest book he uses the phrase people like us do things like this yeah. all the time when you're yeah. talking about marketing because it's yeah. like if you're trying to sell to someone How can you get people on that tribal group? Oh, right. And everything you're saying, I'm like, that really clicks and relates to that. Like, it's, yeah, if you want to sell something to someone, get them to believe in that tribe and say,
2: yeah it's just like apple yeah you know, um when i'm when i'm teaching the storytelling for business i show the that classic apple ad for the mac in 1984 yeah there's nothing there's not even a picture of a computer there's no specs there's nothing it's yeah. purely tribal propaganda it's all these gray ibm suits ooh, looking like skinheads and there's this amazing empowered woman in, you know uh, you know runs through and smashes the thing it's purely tribal it's saying if you're, you're either one of the suits or you're the radical cool kids and they've never stopped doing that you know i'm a mac i'm a pc it's just a different version of a different version of that stuff so it's this tribal marketing it really works it's it's really powerful stuff so you would advocate storytelling for for business yeah absolutely like one of the things that i, that I kind of tell because when i'm doing business stuff i get a lot of skepticism you get all these business people who are sitting there with their arms crossed. Often, often I have to come in and talk to companies, and it's like the people in the group, in the, in the audience, in the, in the have been told that they have to be there, so they're very right. oh. and they oh. hear
0: storytelling, and I suppose they picture kids' books or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think it's a fad. It's just a, it's right. just
2: the latest fad. Um, so, so so what I say to them is that is that, is that if you're not communicating with storytelling, you're not communicating, and that's literally true. So what what I'm telling them how to do is to, is, to how, is to tell your stories in the language of the brain which is even basic structural stuff like cause and effect cause and effect is, 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 the, is the fundamental of how human brains work at how the world works we, 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 um, we, we see change in the world and we build these little cause and effect narratives about what caused that change so John Cleese will see a change in London and he, he'll have one kind of cause and effect narrative about, about how it's happened and what it means and we'll have another There was a really interesting study I was reading about um, a couple of weeks ago that looked at comparing human children to chimpanzees. And what they did was they gave the chimps and these three to five-year-old kids wooden blocks to play with, but the wooden blocks had these sham, these little weights They were sham blocks, had these lead weights buried in them. So they would topple over. You couldn't stack them, they would topple over. And what would happen is the chimps would just stack them and then they would just topple over and they would just keep trying to stack them and there would be no... that would be it. But the human children would make an examination of the block, what caused it to topple over? Mm. So this cause and effect thing is really, it, it's one of our kind of superpowers. It's, it's, it's it, you know, we, we have this obsessive interest in, in what caused that and, and what's going to happen next. And that, of course, is, is the foundation of storytelling. Storytelling is all about cause and effect, no matter whether it's a, you know, a literary novel, like uh, I just read On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwen, which is about a couple in the 1960s and they have honeymoon sex and it goes terribly wrong. And their marriage falls apart on their honeymoon night, and that's it. And the whole and the honeymoon sex is like about six pages, and all of the rest of the of the book is what caused that bad sex to happen, and then what was the effect? That's it. So on that kind of Booker Prize winning or well, Prize nominated level, it's a cause and effect tale about ch- something that's happened in the world. And on the level of, you know, a sixty word story in the Sunday Sport about Kim Kardashian's. Pants, you know, or, 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 or something, or she fell down some steps. That's also a. It's an account of change, and uh, you know, that tends to have this kind of cause and effect narrative. So, so it's how we understand the world. And if you're not, as I say, if you're not communicating using these kinds of patterns, you're not communicating. That bad communicating tends to be very and then. So rather than one thing or another, it's the, here's this thing and here's this fact and then this fact and then this fact and then this fact, and We've all had an experience where we're reading a paragraph and you have to read the paragraph about nine times and you just can't do it because you start thinking about something else. And you beat yourself up, you go, I'm an idiot. But I guarantee nine times out of ten, if you actually analyse the structure of that paragraph, it won't be cause and effect. It'll be and then, it'll just be a list of facts that are kind of vaguely connected. So it's that important. And it's important even on the level of the sentence.
0: And one thing that always stuck with me was something Simon Sinek said was that um, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've always sort of, and that, and that will be telling your story of, of why you do what you do.
2: Yeah. And I think all human groups have these, you know, they, they gather around a purpose. And that goes back to our evolution. Our, our original purpose as, as, a, as a human group was to survive and to fight wars with other, with, you know, and defend yeah. ourselves against other, other tribes. And we just, we've just got to be extrapolated out from that. And every human group, including a a business it it is a tribe with a purpose and I think the best human tribes that kind of manifest in terms of well anything whether it's religion or an ideology or a political party or a company has a very clear purpose and when when Simon Sinek's I'm talking about the why I imagine this is kind of what it's all about whether I don't know whether he's up on the evolutionary psychology side of it but that would be why it's because every group should have this very clear sense of why we're doing what we're doing because you need that precision to kind of orient yourself around
0: he always uses the apple example as well yeah. Of, of yeah them being yeah this is the, all of their advertising and everything was was about why they make the computers not not the how and the it's what the, happens. they want to change
1: the status quo and then everything else comes from there yeah rather than we make great computers and we also change the status quo it's <laughs> like that's their pure aim like their yes. why
2: yeah that's it that's it and steve jobs would always talk about he wanted to be he wanted to be that, the kind of meeting point between technology and the arts. I think that was, for me, that's what Steve Jobs is. That, that was that kind of genius idea that he had. So every computer that he made was done as almost like a work of art. Mm-hmm. The fonts, the way it looked, he had this kind of art. He was an artist and he was an artist that happened to be working in technology. And for me, that's that was their kind of magic. And then that was their tribal motive. That's what made them, made them interesting and great. So even when the, what got them through their tough times... Was that was that they had that very specific identity? We are the creative, the choice of the creative. Filmmakers, musicians, all have Apple computers. And even though they were really expensive and they would break down a lot, they, they still managed <laughs> to have that. They still got it to a certain extent. I, 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 I do I do wonder if it's what's that computer? That's 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 a, that's that's a Mac computer. Pro. Yeah. one of the ones with the bad keyboards.
1: Uh, yes, but I like them and think, it's never been a problem for me. Okay. Like I'm not much of a typer, so right. <laughs> for me it's completely fine.
2: But but that's the thing, they, they still look beautiful. They still have that aesthetic, tasteful thing going on. And it's well, amazing because well, I'm a, I'm more of a Google person. It's like, even when Google are throwing all of their, um you know, brains and financial ammunition at making stuff, they're still ugly compared to Apple. They can't work it out that you've got to make it beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I think that from what I've read, the reason why Apple are kind of not struggling, they're obviously multi-billion, but the reason why their sales are continually dipping is because since Steve Jobs died, they've kind of lost their way and they are talking a lot more about the hows and the whats
2: rather than the why. Yeah, yeah. And just that basic level of taste, as soon as I saw that notch... I thought, what there? I, I couldn't believe it because it's just so ugly. And you think.
1: But I think there's a level of. <laughs> there's a full of different debate now, but yeah. there's a level of practicality. Like, you've got, if you want to do it, they've done the minimal possible to still make it look okay, but push it to the boundaries. Like, by doing that, then it, you just see everyone else copy it. And then there's lots of phones now that have got. Like if this is listened to in three years' time, it'll be interesting to that. But um like I saw one the other day that the camera on the back flips up to the front yeah, yeah, yeah. to take a selfie with. So you've got this completely flawless screen on the front, which is pointless if you've got this stupid thing that's flapping yeah. up and round but people just are after this
2: I I think it's a bad trade-off. I would have a I would I would much prefer to have a what do they call it, a brow than a natural, than because I, I just think it's ugly. So that's why I, I, I always get Pixels, but I've got the new cheap Pixel because it doesn't have a notch. So the 3A? Yeah, the 3A, and it's got a headphone jack. But I, <laughs> I miss my headphone jack. Yeah, <laughs> I don't.
1: I've got like three sets of Bluetooth headphones. So,
2: <laughs> But I think that's a bad trade because you've got another, something else to charge, and oh. the, and the rechargeable battery, it's going to last a year, two years, until the, battery, the rechargeable battery starts losing its power. It just feels like a bad, it's a bad trade-off. It's like... um when they said that Kindles were going to gonna beat out paperback books. And it's like, that's never going to happen because paperback books are a great design already. And so I think so are wired headphones.
1: Oh, but for me, like, I've always got a million things plugged into my computer. <laughs> yeah. So one less thing is an absolute, like, godsend. It? Like, my tablet at home, they've now released a Bluetooth one. I'm like, that'd be great because sometimes I run out of ports and... I could really do with an extra port. Like, in <laughs> fact, my mouse and my keyboard are all wireless. Like, if right. I've got the display, yeah. then it, oh, it just You're only running great. out of
2: ports because Apple won't put them in their damn computers. No, because yeah. no, <laughs> everything I've
1: got is USB-C now, so oh. it's completely fine. <laughs> yeah. I've just got, if I've got a hard drive, a monitor, the power, my tablet, that's four things taking up the four ports. Yeah. So until I can get a multi-port adapter or until everything's wireless, then... Yeah. Like, if I had to put my headphones in there as well, it'd just be like, ugh.
2: I've actually um, realised that this headphone jack thing is, is, is not going to be a problem that I can solve. So I, I've just got an MP3 player now. I've carried two devices around me. God, this great. MVV that's what I used there. to do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to Tech Review with, uh, with the Creative Rebels. Um, so speaking about the uh, the selfie camera there, um, that's something that you uh, you obviously thought a lot of in your book, Selfie, but it's it's not just about the culture of, of taking selfies, but more about, again, the stories that we tell ourselves and how, I guess, how culture is shaping people.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I suppose if The Heretics was the first half of the story, Selfie was really about the power of culture to kind of shape who we are. Because we think about culture as this kind of slightly shallow thing, so it's sort of a, you know the stories that we tell, the films we watch, the newspaper stories or whatever. But it's not. Like, culture is literally built into our brains. When we're born, we have these brains. They call it experience expectance. They're kind of these half-formed brains. So we're not like, um, you know, like giraffes that can kind of stagger up and walk off when we're born. It takes years for us to become properly self-sufficient and then years more before we're classed as adults, no matter where we are in the world. And what's principally happening during those years is our brain is finishing being built. And it's finished being built by becoming localised to its culture. So we're working out and it's essentially asking just this very simple question, which is, who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead? Those two Kind of human, kind of built-in motives, and of course, that's because, because we want different.
0: to because we want to get along with everyone, but we also want to do better than they yeah, do Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. so, so, so back, when, back when we were evolving, uh, and still now, and and this is one thing we don't, we have in common with most animals uh, who live in groups is, is is that the more status we have, the better everything else is. So the more status we have um uh the i 'm talking about animals here you know like chimpanzees bonobos the better access to, to high quality mates um, which doesn 't sound very politically correct, but it's it 's one of those true things better food the, the more secure sleeping sites so everything is better uh, if we have more status and so so unconsciously the brain knows this it 's this heuristic it's this it's this very simple rule to follow if I get more status everything else is going to be better so that's why status is this fundamental drive no matter where you go in the world it doesn't matter about gender it doesn't matter about culture we all want more status and that's because it's this, it's this shortcut to the good life so yeah I, I, but, but it's kind of different cultures have different rules for gaining status and and and, the, and, and the, the two that have had the most attention so far by psychologists is east versus west and and that's because they're, they're the most different and of course in the west we have these individu- we're in this individualistic culture and in the and in east asia um, they're much more communalistic so in in the in, in the west uh, we we kind of fetishize the kind of individualistic hustler. Yeah. We see the world made up of individ- made up of individual pieces and parts, and it's it's all about the individual. The individual is kind of the locus of power and change and all that stuff. Whereas in the East, it's about the group. It's a, it's about the group first. So so I am principally a member of a group, and in order to get along and get ahead, I need to do my bit for the group. Yeah. So so, so they're the fundamental ways of um, seeing the world, even down to the way that we process reality itself so one of the things they do to test this is they put um people from the west and people from the east in in psychology labs and they put these glasses on them and and the glasses measure the kind of tiny movements of their eyes this was we're scanning the environment they're called saccades Um, we do four to five saccades every second and and one of the things they do is they they show you an animation of a fish tank and in this animation you've got this big fish at the front uh, and it's because it's got a show-offy colorful fish at the front and all this other stuff going on around it and they find that the Westerner will generally focus on that individual fish at the front. Whereas the East Asian person will be constantly looking at uh, the, the fish and everything around it. So, it'll be, so they, they'll be far more aware of things in the context because they're, they're aware of seeing reality as, as I'm just part of a, this, this nexus of other stuff that's going on. So when you take them out of the lab and you say to them, what did you see? The Westerner will tend to go, I saw a fish. And whereas the East Asian person would say, "Well, there was a fish tank, and there was all this stuff," and they'll give, they give you the whole world in context. So, uh, when I was interviewing this guy Richard Nisbet, who's the kind of the, the kind of pioneer of this work, they have got the geography of thought. Um, you said, you know, if, you ever, if you've seen the average street scene in in East Asia, in you know, Hong Kong, compared to, you know, it's kind of overwhelming to the average Westerner. You just think, bloody hell. Um, I, I'm sure you've been to Tokyo, it's to like the tech stores in Tokyo, Bit Camera. If you go to Bit Camera, it's just this unbelievable blizzard of like colour. But like <laughs> like you get this endorphin rush and it's, you get this sort of mild panic attack. Whereas if you go to Monocle Curry's, it's totally different because we can't cope with all that contextual stuff. But but this has really powerful... You know, this, this builds up to completely different moral senses of the world. So human rights comes from the West because we see the individual as precious, whereas in the East they're far more comfortable with the idea of an individual taking the fall even if they're innocent as long as it protects the group. Mm-hmm. And that's why human rights is... Something developed initially in, 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 in France, in England and in, in, in the US. And, and, and when when you ask people about the fish, um, they, they, you say to the Westerners, what do you think of the fish? And the, and the Westerners go, oh, I like the fish. That was a good fish. He was the leader. And the East Asian person is more likely to say, well, I felt sorry for the fish because they'd obviously been ostracised from the group and they were out there all alone and that was terrible. And so in, in the East, shyness is seen as a leadership policy. People admire, like the shy kids in the playground are the popular ones. But of course, it's the opposite in in the west so so from these very sort of basic differences in cognition arise totally different moral uh, perceptions of reality but and also different moral realities as well and that's again where you, where you get these huge differences in yeah. norms which 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 end up in these sort of big clashes
0: and those started just through the way that land masses were shaped
2: yeah, that's the amazing thing. I mean, it's just this really extraordinary, but it, but it makes sense. So, 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 so the theory that you ask, how did this happen? And so, what Richard Nisbet and and, and, and his colleagues uh, have concluded is that it all goes back to how we survived you know two and a half thousand years ago. So, Western individualism began in ancient Greece. And Ancient Greece is this weird place where it's not like a big landmass. It's it's, it's it's all these it's like coastal, know, yeah. Greece, is Greece, not Greece is like it's all little islands and rocky rocky village, you know, fishing villages and stuff. Um, so, so one of the things about ancient Greece is that there's very little f- land for farming. You, there's, not big, there's no big farming project. So to get along and get ahead, those fundamental things in ancient Greece, you had to be a hustler. You had to be a, a fisherman or a trader or olive oil grower, or have a little herd of goats in that little patch of scrub that you had. So that's how you survive by kind of, by hustling, by, by getting good at something. And then of course that becomes an ideal of self. And from that comes this veneration of the self, the Olympics. Um, statues of idealised male and female forms in the marketplace, which the the statues of Hercules would look perfectly fine on the cover of Men's Health magazine. They look exactly like a Men's Health cover model. So we haven't changed at all. The story of Narcissus, where somebody falls in love with their reflection and dies of depression because when they realise they can't marry themselves. I mean, that's a very Western story. (laughs) Um, Whereas in the East, uh, totally different. So so it's a landlocked landmass mass basically what was going on two and a half thousand years ago was you you were either part of a a, a rice growing community, which is extremely labor intensive or a wheat growing community, which is slightly less labor intensive, but still very labor intensive, or you were part of one of their kind of magnificent kind of high tech irrigation projects. So in order to survive, the group had to be functional because, because the group, so so it was all about being humble, being subservient, being making sure the group was okay. So you had confused. So you had in the West, you had Aristotle going around talking about, the perfect man being this um, somebody that, you know, the, the Greek stories about the gods going out and kind of fighting and fighting monsters and come back with all these kind of boons, and Aristotle talking about how people, about everything in nature, including people, is on this kind of automatic path towards perfection. Whereas, at this, roughly the same time in East Asia, you've got Confucius going around talking about the perfect man. Um, uh, being somebody who's very humble, who doesn't compete, who knows their place in the world and doesn't try and get outside of their place in the world. So a completely different ideal of self. And it comes from the ecology. It comes from, because that, that's, what, that's what kind of defined how they got on in the world. And of course, that's not true anymore. We're not, we're not tied to that anymore. So, so in Selfie, I kind of follow that story through and I argue that these days, it, the big controlling background force that controls who we are as a people is the economy because it's the economy that defines who we have to be in the world in order to get along and get ahead. And the really interesting thing it, it, for me is what happened in the 80s because obviously before the 80s you had it was very it was a, it was a, it was a relatively communitarian time in the west. It was a time of unionization New deal it was um, very high tax rates in America the top tax rate was ninety percent which is just extraordinary mm. if you think about that today so so it' was very groupish and and, and so the, the first generation that came out of that groupish version of individualism uh, were the um, it was it was it was the revolutionary roads kind of corporation man thing where everybody was in these gray suits and moving into suburbia and be in being the same and then they had kids, and they were the hippies. They were even more communitarian. They were kind of anti demand man, anti-materialistic. Uh, you know, just sitting around smoking dope all the time. And then, so that was that was sixties, seventies. And then in the eighties, by 1995, we completely changed. We were like walking around down Wall Street, flicking our red braces, going on about greed is good, which is obviously a huge generalisation. But but that's what happened. as the people we completely changed. And of course, what happened in between. The 70s and the 80s is our economy completely changed in the West. We went from these very collective policies, which worked for a long time and then stopped working in the 70s. And we went to neoliberalism, which was this which was Thatcher and Reagan's project of increasing competition wherever you could possibly increase it. So removing all the protections that, that, that you, you could get away with job for life, welfare state, funding for the arts. Just get rid of as much of it as, you, as we can possibly get away with to increase competition. And But the, the rules of the game changed. We had to be hustlers again. So it was almost like a re, a rebirth of these kind of quite harsh ancient Greek ideals. Uh, I found this amazing interview that Thatcher gave in AC1. She was interviewed by the Sunday Times and the journalist said to her, you know, what's your big plan, Maggie Thatcher? <laughs> you know, what, what are we going to do? Uh, how are you going to get us out of all this mess we're in? And she said, she said the, the, the problems I see is that, is that um, all the policies over the last few decades have been for the, for the collective and, and, and she wanted to change that. And then she said this really sinister line. She said, um, the project is economic, but the object is to change the soul. Which is a really sinister <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> because, it's because it's true. That's what she did. So if you look at influencer culture now, it's Thatcherite to its bones. It's individuals with hustle Going out there and making themselves into a brand, making money, hustle, hustle, gimme, gimme. It's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's Thatcher's wet dream in influencer culture, and it's entirely neoliberal. Nobody relies on anybody else to. For selfie, I went to Silicon Valley and hang out in the, in the hacker hostels with all these kids in their twenties who were just like unbelievably smart, like really, like terrifying. Like I was the thickest individual in the building by quite a long way. Like it was like, wow. And um, and they didn't want a job for life. They sneered at the idea of a job for life. so said, I want to go and work at Google and Airbnb, and then because the project is me, I want to I want to I want to collect all these amazing experiences and all these amazing skills, and I'm going to hop around. And that's fine. I always think that's fine when you're 20 when you're 23. Come back and talk to me when you're 53, because I guarantee you'll have a different view because you'll be if that world was to be extrapolated outwards. Being 53 is uh, be a terrible thing because no, nobody will want you because you'll you'll be seen as past it and pointless, I suppose. So it, it was interesting to me how how, how they had internalised these neoliberal ideals, whereas before, when the politicians were removing a lot of the obligations for companies to look after their employees and to, and, and, and to say you can't treat these people like machine parts, they're humans, and you have a responsibility for them. And we, we don't have that so much anymore. And people fought against that. But now it's, with the millennial generation, it's been internalised and they, they think it's great. They don't want a job for life. I mean, obviously, whenever you talk about groups, you're talking in generalities. I'm not saying every single person under the age yeah, of sure. whatever believes this. But, but as a general cultural norm, that's, that's seen as, uh, as a good thing.
0: It's crazy that Maggie Thatcher's like creepy sentiments, have, like, <laughs> yeah. but they have come true. But also, a lot of positive has come from it. Yeah. So the economy is well, we're like everything is better now than it probably ever has been, and I don't know. I'm quite a fan of these hustler kids. So. I know that's the
2: depressing thing. when I realised this, I was like, damn, if I just proved Maggie Thatcher was right about something, it was just, yeah. like, said, It was annoying, but it, but it, it, it's true. Like. It, it is impressive but again it's it but again it is a trade-off it, it, it is one of it's one of those things where when you're in your 20s and you've and it was, that's how we began our conversation really you feel like that your power is unlimited that you're going to do you're going to you're going to be steve jobs you're going to be you know cheryl sandberg uh and then things change when you hit middle age and later and you start to realize that actually i you know, I can't hustle forever. <laughs> you know, you so, know. So, 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 I do think that there there has to be a, a a balance. There has to be a balance, and 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 I think you, you can go too far. In um, it, it, there was a, actually a very interesting BBC Four running a documentary about Thatcher at the moment, and um, David Owen that said that, that her mistake was that she, she she went too far and she didn't realise that sometimes not everyone was like her. This unbelievably yeah. driven and talented sharp individual on four hours sleep some people need help they really need help and that's there's nothing wrong with that you know and that's what she didn't get
0: that's crazy so there's so many different routes that i could go off to but i'm starting to realize that all just be for my own selfish (laughs) like i just want to like probe your mind about loads of stuff so, um, so yeah, so with Science of Storytelling, um, I read one review where someone had said that it should almost be illegal and it was almost like cheating, yeah. <laughs> um, like, by buying your book because it was like the, the perfect kind of guide to, to crafting a story, which is obviously a, a lovely, a lovely is, review. I didn't see that one. But but yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's really nice. Um, but would you say that there, um, cause, cause it reminds me of like stand up comedy, so, there's there's almost when you talk to like comedy writers there's almost like this uh, resistance to stand up in that stand up is a is a trick it's a science that can be learnt of wow. standing up in front of a room and I know how to push the room's buttons and if you're a very very good stand up comedian you because everything is is practiced and rehearsed and and tested over and over and over again to 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 elicit this this response um, and I've heard people kind of sort of almost look down at that because it's like almost seen like cheating which i think yeah. is really interesting. interesting um but then the same could be applied to if you if you sort of take the hero's journey and just do you think that's kind of like cheating to just follow this script
2: of it's not yeah it's not my recommendation so so, so i think what, what what's happened over the last few decades is that people have storytellers have become obsessed with structure and you can see why it's happened because what 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 story analysts want to do is to work out what is a story and what, what is the best story And there's no real way of doing that. There's no Previously, there's been no real way of doing that except for comparing all the stories and working out what they've got in common and going, okay, well, this is the story. That's what Joseph Campbell's done and lots of other people have done. And then there's no way of describing your theory without then describing a sequence of events. Well, first this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. So then what people do is they go, okay, well, that's the recipe. I just need to, you know, pop that into my idea for a story and and out will emerge an amazing story. And I, I, I think that's... You know, structure's important, but I I think then what's happened is we're missing the main game, and the main game is character. The structure's only there to test the great, fantastic characters. And actually, really good story comes out of who people are. It doesn't come out of this recipe. It comes, you know, with this happens and this happens and this happens. You know, in, in life... Our story, the plot of our lives, emerges from who we are. Emerges from our values, our mistakes, our wounds, our uh, all the all the all the things that make us this unique and fucked up individual. That's what produces our particular story. And and the same should be. The same is true in really great stories that we read. The same is or or, or in films. The story emerges out of these amazing characters. It almost feels inevitable. Like of course they're going to do that. And so I think the best stories. By which I mean the most successful kind of commercial stories. They they kind of marry that really efficient and uh, and disciplined structure with fantastic characters, and they're not necessarily completely wedded to this perfect five act or whatever um, uh, three act structure. So if you think about some of the stories that, that that you've most enjoyed, I guarantee you'll be you won't be thinking about oh this is great midpoint. <laughs> this is great, exciting, isn't it? You've been thinking, oh, do you remember with and with and I? He was brilliant, wasn't he? You know, and or do you remember Darth Vader? It's, it's the characters, and and it's because we care about the characters and empathise with the characters that we ram our head into the sofa and scream and beg and start crying, and that's the great thing that you get from actually pursuing the science, because the science doesn't start with structure; it's the kind of first time. Now we've got to a certain level of understanding of how the self and the brain works. We can actually start approaching a story from a completely different direction, which is, okay, so how does the brain produce the story of the self? And, and, and how do we get into our scrapes? How do we get into our struggles? How do we make the mistakes that we make about the world that end up? And, and, and so, so then you get this much more freeing guide to how to tell stories, so, and, and, and we, which doesn't rely on you having to tick all these kind of structural boxes. And that's really what the book's, about is showing you all. It's, it's like a is a bunch of weapons. It's like an armory. <laughs> I'm giving you all these weapons that you can play with uh, that, that are all gonna kind of- based in the science and, and and see it opens up all these new areas things like moral outrage uh, which which isn't really talked about in story status we've talked about status a lot today and status play is absolutely inimical to stories it's very hard to imagine a great story that doesn't have significant status movement in it whether it's our hero starting low status ending up high status or a villain starting high status or ending up low status or it's like a a victorian novel where our protagonist will start off being a bit high status and, and, uh, and full of themselves and finding humility. Um, so, so status play is really packed into the stories that we tell ourselves. And so is things like moral outrage, which is a very kind of tribal emotion. And, and so, so it's a hopefully a kind of a, a, a kind of fresh toolkit with which storytellers can play and, and be a bit more creatively free rather than having to just follow this step-by-step guide.
0: Yeah, I I've, I've found the book absolutely fascinating. And yeah, a toolkit is a really good way of describing it. I think it's uh, um, an essential read. When, when you were saying that, it made me think of Walter White from Breaking Bad as such an interesting, and, and I guess other than maybe a tony, tony Soprano, but but a character that you're totally rooting for him, even though he's he's bad really yeah. really evil
2: yeah well that's that's the power of moral outrage it's such a so that was so moral outrage is the way that human tribes would have kept themselves together that's how we evolved and so so there's a dominant theory in psychology that now that um human language evolved in the first place to swap social information in other words gossip so what would happen is that we would gossip about each other and if and if the gossip was a, about somebody Usually, high status being mean or unfair to somebody low status, we would feel moral outrage, and the moral outrage would motivate us to act to punish the transgressor. And so that's how we kept our tribes in check without a police force or a judiciary. It was just on gossip and moral outrage. And so, so, so that's how important storytelling is is, is to our. To and that's built
0: into our fabric because of yeah, thousands of years of behaving exactly. in that We're way.
2: We're to experience that. So whenever we detect that pattern in in in, in reality low-status person in an unfair situation. We feel moral outrage. We start rooting for them. And, you know, we can't physically punish the transgressor. But in order to kind of make that uncomfortable feeling go away we have to keep reading and keep watching the thing and, and if you watch so in, in my when I when I teach this I show the first five minutes of the first episode of Breaking Bad I don't actually talk about Breaking Bad in the book but I do it in the course and there's so much moral outrage going on he's this this you, you're introduced to this wonderful teacher who's passionate about his craft yeah. who has inoperable lung cancer he's got um, uh, a son with I think spina bifida a pregnant wife he's going to die he's just trying to get money for them so he's having this secret he's having this secret <laughs> secret job as a as a car washer after hours he's washing his car and this obnoxious student sees him doing it and makes him shine his hubcaps and laugh laughs at him and mocks him then he goes home and hank his obnoxious high status brother-in-law it's a surprise birthday for him and he steals his beer and toasts him with it and mocks him and teases him in front of all of his friends i mean this is all in the first three or four minutes so by the end of the first five minutes you're, you, you're so on his side. Oh, this poor bloody guy, it's not fair. <laughs> like the moral outrage is, You hate Hank. And of course, Hank's the and then after those five, four or five minutes, he, he sees um, on the news this meth haul of all this money and he goes, that's a, a lot of money, isn't it? And Hank goes, no, it's just normal. We have all meth dealers make that kind of money. And then you're in. And, and the moral outrage is so effective in making us root for Walter White that, as you say, you're still rooting for him as he's literally burning yeah. the bodies of his enemies in bars of acid. You're still wanting him to get away <laughs> with it. And that's the amazing power of moral outrage. And that, that's really a big fuel for great storytelling. If you can, if you can trigger people's moral outrage, you've got them.
0: So as a writer, so how do you go about, like obviously you've got to keep the lights on. So yeah. obviously you're, you teach workshops, Yeah, you sell books. Well, it's and... really
2: ghostwriting. That's mainly oh, okay. Keep the, keep, keep the lights on. Yeah, so, so, I, so I, I do lots of ghostwriting. So I write books for much more famous people than me. Yeah.
0: Wow, anyone yeah. you're allowed to name or is it all NDA um, stuff? Uh,
2: some of it is. I mean, I wrote, the, the, the last sort of big book I wrote was by um, Ann Middleton, who's the SAS guy.
0: Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
2: his, his memoir, First Man In, that was that was me. I wrote that. <laughs> and I've just written his second book, The Fear Bubble, which is out in September. So, so, so and, and the First Man In I wrote using the science of storytelling principles. And, and it was, and, and I mean, I've never talked about this before. I, I assume it's okay like to talk about. I think it is. Um, so there was a first version of that book called Point Man. And Point Man was about his years in the SAS, which is, of course, what everybody wants to know. Yeah. Um, and then the book got banned by the MOD because, of course, it's breaking every official secrets act. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 So we had this problem of how can we write Ant Middleton's memoir without talking about the SAS? Yeah. And the answer, of course, is that, well, right, all, all great stories is a character. And, and, and so, I, you know, you go back to character and who is Ant Middleton and what's his, you know, what's that thing that's driving him? And that's what I did. And and the book's been it was this crazy success. It was the second bestselling hardback of last year. I don't. I know you think I don't get royalties. So if that's what you're thinking, <laughs> so, so, so 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 yeah. So so that's how I. That's how I keep the lights on. That's what I spend most of my time doing is, is, is ghostwriting, Yeah.
0: How do you find time for your, I guess, side projects of writing amazing books?
2: Uh, thank you. Um, by saying no a lot, actually. Yeah. So so by by saying no a lot. So I'm. So yeah, I've said no to Ant's third book, which I could 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 have been um quite um profitable for me, but it's just because I want to focus on my my next one and, of course, and it's going to be not as much money in that but it's it's not it's not all about the money you've got to have a happy life that was status yes exactly <laughs> exactly i want to have my name on it <laughs> no no i mean well, i say well partly i suppose partly is that yeah but but yeah it's but, it's, it's but also for me life starts going wrong when i say yes to too much mm-hmm. and, and as soon as i start feeling like i haven't got enough time in the day to do a good job like a really good job i, I start to get very unhappy. So it's it's about it's about learning to go. It's not about earning maximum dollar. It's about doing a great job. And in order to do a great job, you have to have some space. Especially as you know, as being creative, you have to have that kick in the can time where you're just thinking. And if you if you if you're having to churn out two thousand words a day every day for a year, two years, three years, you can't. You haven't got time to think properly.
0: Yeah. Amazing. um Where can people find you online?
2: Website is willstore.com and I'm on Twitter W-S-T-O-R-R at Will at
0: Amazing Thanks for coming in Thanks so, so much Pietro, dude. Thank you. Thanks for listening We're trying to help a lot of people with this show so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message
1: If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today or they just need a little nudge in the right direction pass this podcast on to them If you want to hear more, then
0: subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever. If you can leave us an iTunes review, it makes a huge difference. See ya.